Yeah. I'm trying to think if I had any experiences. I did, okay. I did have this experience when I was like, I had to be like 13, 12 or 13. And I was at my friend's house. I will not name names. And it was a bunch of us. We were like in her room. And I guess we were being like very well behaved, like very quiet kids. And she lived like with just her mom and her sister. So it was a house of all girls. And her mom came in not knowing that her daughter had like friends over and she happened to be changing and I guess was like changing her bra because she came in fully topless and then screamed in front of the whole room. And I, I will never forget this. And she was like, what the f***? She was like, <laughs> she was like, get in here now. Like, And I could hear them fighting in her bedroom. She was like, what are all those kids doing over here? She's like, I saw a boy in there. I was topless. Like, such a mess. Oh my I felt god! So, I felt so bad. Oh god! Because like, I mean, little did she know, little did she know <laughs> that I didn't care one bit. <laughs> little did she know that you were like, oh my god, is that a Victoria's Secret bra you're holding in your hand? <laughs> you almost like, just made me spit wine all over this entire computer. <laughs> is that the bombshell? <laughs> <laughs> Not the bombshell. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Well, How are with we that, pivot from this? I know. I was like, <laughs> you care to talk about child murder today? <laughs> I've got to get like, serious. How do we pivot from child oh, sleepovers? I, and I can do it. Anything. Bras. Anything. I can bring us into it. I promise you. All right. So, hello, everybody. Bring me in. <laughs> Welcome to Creep Time, the podcast with Silas Dean and Stu. We are just coming off from Thanksgiving. I hope yours was wonderful. It sounds like it's been great so far. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And Creepers, happy Thanksgiving. I. Hope you all are recovering, sleeping, doing whatevs, drinking yes, a little Yes, I hope we're, we're all Silas a little heavier today. <laughs> I'm yes, feeling very yes. heavy. <laughs> I'm feeling bloated. <laughs> Careful, we might be coming up with new uh, new quotes for merch. <laughs> I feel bloated. <laughs> I, <laughs> if that's our merch, that's that's incredible. So be it. I uh, I did a live recently, and I was like, for any of the creepers who are watching, there were like a few hundred people on the live. I was like, for anyone who like listens to the podcast, I'm like, can you just throw out some of the, like your favorite quotes from like the podcast that we could put on merch? Stu, they came out with they came out of the woodworks with stuff that we didn't even pick up on. Like, oh god, I mean, they came with all the good ones. It was like, give me that basement. They were like, um, yeah, sinister. There was one. Oh god, can't trust county. Obviously, was on there, but they came up with so yes, many good yes. ones. I should have taken screenshots or something because I was like, you guys really pay attention and like zero in. Oh, my <laughs> God. Please do. We need something also with like a Nancy Grace quote or something like Nancy has to be involved. In some I capacity. mentioned that and I was like, do you guys think we could be sued? And every single one of them was like, absolutely. <laughs> you could absolutely be sued. <laughs> I, I literally hope Nancy Grace sues us. That would be the greatest <laughs> day of my life. Just to appear in court <laughs> next to her. I would love to be prosecuted by Nancy Grace. Literally, I would pay Nancy Grace to prosecute me. Put me what in jail. What are your Put intentions? Like, <laughs> keep me in a holding cell, honey. Well, Please. with that, I can pivot us into this very sinister story. Thank you again for jumping on to do this. Um, because you know a little bit of this of story, but you don't know all of it. The boy in the box. I know about the boy. I know about the box. I know it was in the... 50s 60s yes, correct. something the 50s. like that yeah you got it and yeah and just uh that it was super super weird because i don't think they ever found out who he was right 
They haven't. No, it's 60 plus years later. Okay. They still haven't solved it. It's an unsolved story. Insane. <gasps> I mean, that's well, that's literally I'll, all I know. I'll jog your memory. I'll give you a full top line before we get into the actual crime scene, the investigation. And the investigation, as you can imagine, it's kind of shorter than most of the ones we cover, we've cover. we covered previously because this is, like, it really does hit a, like quite a dead end. Um, but there are a lot of theories around this. So I'm going to jump straight in and tell you the story. So the mystery of this case, it begins on February 25th, 1957, like you said, in Fox Chase, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So Fox Chase is like a borough within Philadelphia, I guess. And to picture it, it's like freezing cold outside, middle of February or end of February, I guess. There's snow on the ground and off this like back road in this town, there would be a discovery that would sort of mar the reputation of this town for decades to come. Even to this day, people in this town talk about this. So the first report that comes in is a sighting from a college student who was down this road. And this is the story, you're going to love this, that he gives to police at the time. He says that he pulled over because he saw a rabbit, like a bunny, run across the road. And he knew that this was a common area where people would set traps. And he was like, I have to pull over and make sure the, the rabbit's okay we would later find out this was a like a bullshit story so he goes into the woods um and he's searching i guess for the rabbit right and somewhere in like the brush of this forest he would come across this box this like tattered box and he looks inside for what he thought at the time he was like that's like a dirty doll because it looked impossibly small to be a child um but it would in fact turn out to be the unknown boy who's roughly between the ages of three to seven, who was very clearly starved, killed, and left in a cardboard box in the woods. Shockingly, in the coming days, we would learn that this student was not the only person who found this boy and did not report it to police right away. And the discovery would lead to one of the most sinister cases, sinister unsolved cases in U.S. history, known as the boy in the box. That is the top line Kind of, it's shocking, right? Right out the gate. Oh my God. It's so shocking. It's so, um, I had no idea that people, like multiple people came across it and didn't report it. Yes. But can you imagine back in the 50s, like that, because you have to remember also back then that crime was not, mm-hmm. that that was highly unlikely that you would stumble across a scene like that. Oh, like yeah. it would have been so just uh, baffling to even encounter that, I feel like. Yeah, and Fox Chase was not a very crime-ridden area either. I mean, there there weren't things like this that happened. Certainly weren't things on like like this that happened that got reported on on a national scale because just the headline of that is so shocking for the time. Boy, unknown boy <sighs> found in a box in the woods. It's terrifying. Terrifying. Oh my God. And you said starved to death? Well, he, that was not the cause of death, but he was very, very visibly starved, which played into how small he was. Because if you remember the, the guy who finds him, the college student, he was like, the, he looked impossibly small. He was like, I, I saw this thing and I was like, is that like a, like a wrecked up doll? Like, what is that? But we would learn like what his actual story was, why he was out there. And he's not actually implicated in the boy's death in any way. He just happened to be like someone who discovered mm-hmm. it, who was doing something sinister already in the woods who was then like oh my oh god. god he was like how how am i going to report this to police what's my story that's the worst when you're like committing like a low-level crime and then you find an actual yeah. crime and you're like damn and you're it like 
Oh my God. What was he? Uh, well, I'm sure you'll tell me. Oh yeah. I'll totally get into doing. it. Um, essentially he was a peeping Tom. Uh, and he was ah. just like, damn, he was like, what am I going to tell cops now? <laughs> not what he wanted to peep. Oh my God. Yeah. But he's, like I said, he's not the only one who found this boy. Like several days before that, there was somebody else out there. And I think his story was based on like, um, he was setting like illegal animal traps, which played into like the first part of the story. Like where the guy's like, I know this is a place where people set traps, but also he like said he saw it and he was like, I don't want to get involved with that. Which is like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> Imagine finding a dead child and you're like, eh, uh, it'll tie me up. Like, you're like, it's for the birds. Like, I got other things to do. <laughs> oh, my God. The logic is wild. It had to be a time oh. period thing. Yes, definitely. So I guess with that, I'm going to jump into the full story and I'll talk about a little bit more about the discovery and about the actual crime scene itself. So let's jump right in. The report comes in, that first report from the college student and police descend upon fox chase to investigate this box now the scene as you can imagine is shocking like inside the box it appeared to be this little boy he's found nude and he's only like 30 pounds he's really really tiny now in the original police report that i found he's described as a caucasian child possibly between the ages of four to six we would later learn that that's wider it's like three to seven maybe he's three feet three inches and he is shrunken from starvation Physically, his whole body is shrunk. Um, He's completely without clothes, but he's very tenderly wrapped in this blanket. And the entirety of this boy seemed to be really confusing for investigators. It contradicted itself because he clearly had signs of like severe abuse. He was malnourished. He had all of these visible wounds on his head, on his body. He had bruises, all of these things suggesting that he was abused. But he also had these very clear signs that he was extremely well cared for. Like, his hair was freshly cut. His body was very clean. Like, he just had a bath. His fingernails were trimmed. They were very neat. And he was groomed, Stu. He was groomed so well to the point that his eyebrows were tweezed. They were shaped. Isn't that shocking? Oh, my God. This is giving me Carl Tanzler vibes. Oh, it's it's terrifying. Um, And the boy also had semi-recent scars that were found under his chin, on his groin, and his ankle, which investigators believed at the time, suggested that he went he like went under the knife, like had a surgery or some kind of procedure. Although there are no doctors or surgeons in that area who ever claimed to have treated or worked on the boy, like nobody recognized him. So his hands and feet were shriveled because they had been left in some kind of like water or maybe a bathtub for a very, very long time. And there was also evidence that he may have suffered from a pretty severe eye ailment in both of his eyes where... It was just left untreated for a very long time. And from the nature of the body, the bruises, the wounds, um, that was contradicted by the way he was placed in this box. He was very carefully laid in there. Like his legs were crossed, his arms were crossed across his chest, and he was like swaddled in this blanket. It was so odd. (laughs) And his injuries. Yeah, I know, right? And, like, the injuries that were found on his head were eventually linked to his cause of death, and they believe he died from extreme blunt force trauma, so bad that his skull was caved in, in the back. And they were able to determine, based off of an autopsy and food that was found in his stomach, that he'd maybe eaten, like, two to three hours before he was killed, and they also found this, like, black substance in his throat and esophagus, which they couldn't figure out what it was, but the theory is that it was some kind of a vomit that then, like 
molded or something. And from day one, like the discovery of the boy and, you know, from these initial witnesses, everything about this case is just confusing. So with that, I'm going to jump into the investigation and how they start prying through all of the resources to try to find out who this boy is. But before I do, any thoughts on that scene? That's got to be one of the most, like, sinister scenes that we've covered on this podcast. Oh, my God. Well, it just, um, I guess my first reaction is that the, like, um, I guess, like, what's the right word? Um, Dichotomy, I guess, between how mm-hmm. well he was groomed and how poorly he was actually like in his physical health condition how abused he was yeah how abused he was like how gross and sinister this is already that it's like this weird like as i was saying carl tanzler vibes like someone mm-hmm. probably feigning care and feigning like love and what it really was was control and abuse and um something just really really like foul and scary and um it's like you, it's oh almost doll, it's doll like in the way that you yeah, link it to Carl Tanzler. yeah it's like yeah. dressing up a child um or grooming a child for like yes. one specific type of like visual pleasure i guess while also i mean that's abusive in and of itself but also like physical abuse that's going on with that but this plays into a ton a ton of theories that come out of this um <sighs> So I'm going to shift into, like, the actual investigation and, like, how police are like, we're going to nail whoever did this to this kid. Okay. So in the initial report of the boy's discovery, like I said, shockingly, we learn that it came a full day after this college student found the boy. So all of these reports came in and he was, like, giving this story. He's like, I saw a rabbit. It ran off the road. And I was chasing it. And I found this trap. And, like, police don't buy that. They're like, you are absolutely full of shit. Which is making you suspect number one because you're already feeding us a lie. So then we learn from a confession once he realizes he's under suspicion for it. He's like, no, okay, fine. This is my actual story. He was trying to like go through like a back way through these woods to like see some girls that he knew would be like outside and like do a peeping Tom thing. Mm -hmm. So he confesses to that and he says like in the process he found the boy. But then we later hear from another confession of, like, um, the other man who found the boy, like, possibly two to three days before this. He was out there setting the muskrat traps, and he found the boy, and he was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Like, I don't want to get in trouble for, like, setting these illegal traps, because it's an illegal dumping ground, and, like, it's it's other someone else's property. He's like, I don't want to get in trouble for that. I also don't want to get involved, because everyone's going to think that I did it. So he doesn't report it either, but he later confesses to, like, I saw this boy. So now we have these two people who discovered it. They are ruled out. They're not a part of his death in any way, but it it really put, like, a kink in the investigation because the delays, in addition to, like, the cold temperatures, they couldn't really figure out how long he'd even been out there because he was kind of preserved for a while in the snow. Like, he was just frozen as he was. Ugh. Well, you know what's really interesting about that? (laughs) Crazy. And what's really interesting is that it, I know that they never found out who did it, but it gives you a little bit of insight as to the type of person that would have dumped him there. Funny that both of these people, even though they weren't, um, they were just suspects that were ruled out eventually. Mm -hmm. Funny that both of them knew that they could go and commit some, uh, crimes here or you know illegal acts here. yeah yeah like they knew the it was a place that, that was like yep goes down yeah and so this person that dumped his body there i mean he must have run in a similar kind of crowd you know what i mean oh totally well 
oh god, I cannot wait to get into the theories of this because you're going to flip. <laughs> oh my god. But from those reports and from like the delay of, of you know, people citing him and 1957 forensics, like I said, they really can't pinpoint when he was actually placed there, how long he had been dead, but they think it was for sure, for sure, sometime in February. Um, if not like maybe at max two weeks before he was found. So he's held at the morgue for like 10 days, I think. Um, or sorry, more than that. My apologies. He's held at the morgue and 10 visitors come in search of like missing children in Philadelphia. And they're like, we're going to ID this, this body. Not a single person knew who he was. Nobody recognized him. So this becomes very sinister as a local case because it's like, it's shocking and it's unreasonable to imagine that nobody seems to know who this boy was. So investigators really buckle down. They go a step further. They initiate a post-mortem photo shoot of the body that captures him (gasps) at three different angles and they printed out 400,000 flyers of these images. They are sent to police stations. They're sent to post offices, government offices. They are all over the United States. And the American Medical Association also jumped in with these photos and they release a public national description of the body and how he was found, where he was found. Nobody recognizes him. He is like an unknown child. So here's where things get even stranger. At the time, all of these like local hospitals in the U.S., especially in the Philadelphia area, um, they were taking like foot and fingerprints of newborns as a regular practice. That was like a foolproof way to be like a child is born. They will mm-hmm. not get mixed up with like another newborn. Like we're just going to ID every baby. So they do that with the deceased boy. They take his footprints, they take his fingerprints, and they compare it to all of the local hospital archives from Pennsylvania for a child maybe born three to seven years prior. There's no match. There is no proof that this child ever existed, according to hospital records. It's insane. Wait, just in the Pennsylvania, in the state of Pennsylvania? They did, yeah. And there's more um, There's more reasoning behind why they kept it to just Pennsylvania, because they're, they're playing off of other evidence that's found with the boy that makes... Okay. Suggests that he was probably from or born in Pennsylvania. But still, oh, there seemed to be no locals. There were no fo- like foster homes, orphanages. Nobody who recognized this boy. He's just a child who's like completely off the grid in society. It's almost like he was born not in a hospital or like home birth. Yeah, home birth. Yeah, home like birth something is very off. Yes, I would say so. I mean, especially you know, knowing the abuse that he clearly suffered. Like it seems like he came from a crowd that. Yeah. Maybe wouldn't go to a hospital if someone was having a baby. Yes. But let's get into the actual crime scene. I want to run you through some of the evidence they do find and how they're able to, like, connect a few dots here. So police turn back to the crime scene because they're like, nobody's identifying this boy. This is insane. And they pick up the clues and the evidence that's available. They're like, what do we have? And they start with the box that he was found in. So this box is kind of a lucky break because it has a printed serial number on it. That is connected to Philadelphia, which is why they kept their hospital search in Philadelphia for the most part. And it's connected to a JCPenney that was 15 miles away from where the boy was found. So this particular box that it was used to ship a bassinet for a baby, which is crazy because it also leans into this idea that like whoever had him, if we're assuming it's just one family or one person, they were, like, both caring for him and abusing him. You know what I mean? Like, to go as far as to spend your money to buy a bassinet for a baby, 
But at the same time, like you have a child who's malnourished, you have a child who has severe abuse, who died from head trauma. It, the two things conflict. It's so odd. It also, I wonder, like, is do you think that that was his bassinet that was purchased when he was a baby? Is that like kind of the consensus? I think so. For the most part, at least at this part in the investigation, they think that. They're like, the bassinet was okay. probably used for him unless he came from like a bigger family. But they, they really couldn't tell. But they were able to glean a few details from this actual box. And they're like, okay, well, what can you tell us? So they nail down the boxes from this specific JCPenney. And the store is actually able to confirm they have only ever shipped out 12 of these bassinets, 12 of these boxes that have this serial number. So we've got a tighter pool now, really tight pool. However, everybody paid in cash. There's no record. They no. didn't keep records oh like my that. God. So they were like, we don't, we don't know who bought these, but we know we shipped out 12 from like our inventory records. So the police are like, fuck it, we're going to publicize the story anyway um, and hope that people come forward. And they do. So the story goes public. Eight of the 12 purchasers come forward and they're like, oh my God, I, I purchased this. I have this box. I still have the box like in my basement. I have receipts. So they rule out eight of those purchasers. So we've now narrowed it down to four unknown parties or people who purchased that box. And we don't know who they are. So then police also somehow were able to confirm that this particular box was shipped to Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. And for context, it's like 30 minutes away from where the body was found. So that's a pretty narrow um, lens, right? Like they've really narrowed this down. It's kind of impressive, actually. Yeah. But it's kind of a dead end because they're like, outside of that, we have no other way to know who has this box. So then they turn their attention over to the blanket that he was wrapped in. And what they can determine, they're like, we know where it was manufactured. There are like two major manufacturers in like North America that make this. However, there are thousands that were distributed. So that's kind of a dead end. They're like, we don't know how to piece together like if that blanket means anything. So they find another clue. There is a blue cap, like a hat, that was a size 7 and 1 eighth, which I think is a men's size, that was found in the snow, like feet away from the body. This is a really big clue for them. So they take the hat and they're examining it. And what they notice, there's like, there's a custom buckle on this. Like somebody worked on this hat. And then they look at the tag. It's linked to a custom shop. So there is a custom hat shop or like a seamstress shop that's owned by Hannah Robbins. So this is their lucky break. They go all the way to her shop in Philadelphia and they show her the hat. And she's like, yes, I, I worked on this hat. Someone came in with the hat and they asked for a custom buckle. She also has no records because everybody paid in cash. They don't know. No. Yes. So, but what she does have, she remembers exactly who came in. She doesn't know him by name, but she was like, it was a blonde man. And he was a young guy. She was like, he was like 26 to 30. He came in. He requested this like leather buckle be added to the hat, paid in cash, never saw him again. Never saw him again. So they use that description. They use the physical hat. They visit more than a hundred businesses in this area. Nobody recognizes the hat. Nobody knows who the man might be who fits the description. They have never seen him wearing it. It is a dead end. It's insane. Like, Can I just say though that like, for back then, why are these investigators, like, doing the most? And, t- like, they're making such good ground with this case. And I'm kind of mm-hmm. like, 
I feel like sometimes this kind of like diligence does not even come into play in like more modern cases. Like I'm actually kind of amazed as you were recapping this, that they were able to like whittle it down to that small of a pool, then to go think of the buckle. Like, I mean, that's pretty impressive for back then. Oh, people went way above and beyond on this case. I mean, you're very right. Like, in comparison to modern day cases, I don't know if it's just because this kind of crime was so shocking for the time that they were like, right. we're going to nail this down. It also might have been one of the first um, cases of, uh, like, a viral story, I suppose, where, like, because this is a pretty shocking yeah. headline and papers were reporting on it. So there's a lot of media pressure to solve this case. That might have been one of the first instances where the public is like, we want answers. And if you don't figure it out, like, so I think that's why they threw so many resources towards it. Totally. This actually kind of reminds me of, um, there was a movie, I think about 10 years ago that was based on a true story. I don't think it was based off of this, um, but it was called The Changeling with Angelina mm-hmm. Jolie in oh, the yes. 40s. I know what it's based off of. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And like they, she, it was like a, uh, child that wasn't actually hers, but the police mm-hmm. claimed that it was. Anyways, not the same thing, but same sort of situation where back then it was considered such a high-profile case because things like this didn't really happen. Murders and crimes like this were kind of, they were so rare. And then to think of it happening oh, to yeah. a child was even like worse, like way more sinister than... Um, yeah, it was a big you know, headline just a regular at the time. crime. So, yeah, so it was a big deal to get it solved. Especially in like the age of the single stream news source because most people got their news not from television or anything else, but just the paper. So if the papers are reporting this as a front page story for like weeks and weeks and weeks, that's all yeah. everybody's talking about. Like that's right. what people call each other at night, people are scared, especially in the Philadelphia area, like it's a very very big deal. So This is a dead end for them, though. Like, the hat thing doesn't pan out. So they look to additional evidence that's on the boy's body, where they find he has a significant amount of hair that was found, like, on his body, and it's his hair. So I mentioned before he had a fresh cut, which Mm -hmm. suggested to them, they were like, they think this happened either right before or after he died. And they think it might be tied to him having very long hair. Now, this gave way to a new avenue of suspicion from the police where they're like, we think this boy might have been raised as a girl. And then he was killed and then left in the woods. So the theory becomes so compelling that investigators and sketch artists on the West Coast, they've got the whole country joining in on this. They actually do a reimagination of his face to see um, what he would look like if he was a girl. You know, if he was brought out in public wearing long hair, if he had the thinly plucked eyebrows and all of these things and maybe wearing a dress. So this image gets circulated and they were like, this has got to be it. No identifications. Nobody has seen this face. It's unimaginable for them. They can't understand how no one has ever seen him. So despite these count, like countless interviews, they've got images circulating. Police came up short yet again and they become really desperate. So they do something very sinister So much so, in their desperation, um, they actually convinced local officials to approve yet another post-mortem staged photograph. And at this point, this has been like a very long time (laughs) since this boy has been found and, you know, he's dead. And they dress him in clothing and they stage him sitting up for a photo shoot to try to depict him in a lifelike setting to see if anybody recognizes him in more of a lifelike state as opposed to the autopsy 
photos and sketches they've distributed previously. And at this point, the boy has some pretty significant decomposition that's going on around his mouth, his eyes, um, but they have to print these photos anyway because this is their last attempt to try to identify him. So they put that out. It's even run in papers with a disclosure. Nobody recognizes the boy. There are no neighbors. There are no doctors, caretakers. No one ever comes forward to say that they knew this boy and the case goes cold as one of the most sinister stories of the time. And despite law enforcement, you know, retiring and passing away in like the 60 some odd years that this has been going on, there are still investigators who, you know, pour over the story because it's such an eerie case. And that's everything we know about the boy in the box. It's a pretty quick, like, recap of the story before we jump into theories. But what are your impressions? The thought of him being um, uh, paraded as, like, a, a girl, mm-hmm. that that struck a chord with me. I was like, okay, that starts to make a little bit more sense. Because also, to think about, you know, as little boys get older and older, they're going to... the the female um, traits or like female passing traits are going to start to change and they're going to start to become more masculine looking. Mm -hmm. So, oh my God, that that gave me like a pit in my stomach. The second you said that, I was like, Especially the plucked eyebrows. When I heard about the plucked eyebrows when I was researching, I was like, there's something to that. That's intentional for a reason. Totally. And the cutting of the hair feels very like... Oh yeah. It feels um, almost like a coming of age kind of thing. Like it's so weird. Well, the cutting of the hair, they really thought they were like, it definitely happened in like a rush state because the way his cut, his hair was cut was not um, meticulous, right? It wasn't um, to yeah. shape a boy's haircut. It was like he had bald patches. Like somebody was just trying to get the long hair off of him because they were like, we don't want him identified as, as the girl that people have seen him as kind of thing. Oh my God. But we don't know. We still don't know. Can can I also ask, you said the scars at the beginning, mm-hmm. like near the groin, and you said something else, like ankles. He's got the chin, yeah, you- the chin, the groin, and the ankle. They found surgical scars, which no doctor ever came forward for and was like, I operated on this kid. I know what these procedures were. They don't even know what was done to him. He just has scars. Do you have, maybe it'll be in the theories, but any idea what those scars would have been from? Like surgical scars to keep up the female presenting... I have no no evidence on that because all of the theories that I have actually kind of stray from like him being presented as a girl being like the pit of the theory. A lot of it is about like how he came to be in someone's possession who was abusing him in any way, whether it's like they're dressing him up or they're, you know, clearly beating him, they're starving him. Most of the theories are like, how did he get from being born to being in someone's possession where they put him in this state? It's wild, but no, I don't have anything on the, I would love to look up some theories after this about like what the scars could actually mean because it's pretty intriguing. I don't think in the autopsy they found any evidence of, of what was done to him internally, you know, but especially when I heard scars on the groin and like the possibility of him being presented as a girl, I was like, that's very interesting. Yeah. I was also going to say like, did you immediately start to go to... I hate that we always have to go here, but like some sort of sexualization of him or. Absolutely. um, Yeah. Especially. I I really fixate. I know it's an odd detail to fixate on, but the plucked eyebrows is very interesting to me because I tried to get inside the psychology behind that. I'm like, you're grooming a child because nobody plucks their kids eyebrows. That's insane. No. You're grooming a child 
to look like either a girl or maybe look like a doll, or you're, you're meticulously shaping the way your child looks for some reason. And then that child ends up dead with all of this evidence of abuse. I have to assume that there's some sort of sexual tie there to you trying to shape the visual of this child. Oh my God. (laughs) Let's just be thankful. Nancy Grace wasn't alive for this because this would cover six months of her segment. (laughs) Oh my God. It really bothers me that this, they, they, they don't have, I mean, I know you'll probably go there, but they don't have anybody they've ever been able to pin to this. Not even. Well, we've got a couple of things for sure. I will definitely get okay. into this, but there is sort of a happy, I don't want to say a happy, but there is hope and optimism at the end of this because as of 2020, 2021, police announced that they have some evidence now that they think can really nail this case and who he was. So much so that they got approval to exhume the body. When? This was 2020, 2021, like recent. Oh my God. Oh my God. We're going to have yeah. another like Lady of the Dunes live. Oh my God. They haven't I'm released any additional information. Yeah. They don't want to get everybody's hopes up until they have some concrete stuff, but they have, have leaned into this suggestion saying that they think they have enough evidence to connect, you know, A and B that they think they may have found like his, his birth family, like his family. Um, no and way. they think it's possible. He may even have siblings who are still alive. We don't know anything else, so I hope that doesn't fall away. But I can get straight into the theories if you want to hear some. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So the first theory that's kind of publicly tossed out with investigators, um, they have this theory that he could have been the son of a carnival worker. So this takes place in 1961. They zero in on this. It's Philadelphia. The investigators question Kenneth Dudley and his wife, Irene Dudley. Uh, which is ironic you brought up that case with Changeling, because I think that's based on the case of Bobby Dudley, I think. Which oh, I, okay. Yeah. Um, it's not connected to these Dudleys, but I was just like, it's funny that you brought that up, because they're like yeah. suspects number one. So Kenneth Dudley and his wife Irene. So they determine, um, they're trying to determine if the boy in the box had been one of their children. They had 10 children, and he might have been one of like the middle children. The entire family, they were like a circus family, and they would travel up and down the country where Kenneth was constantly looking for work. He was kind of a peddler. Um, But the Dudleys came to attention with law enforcement when it was discovered that one of their children, seven-year-old Carol Ann, had died as the result of neglect, malnutrition, and exposure. And instead of them burying their child, because clearly she died at their hands of neglect... They wrapped her up in a blanket and placed her body in a wooded area in Virginia. So it then emerged in the investigation. Police are like, well, if they did this behavior once, who's to say that they wouldn't have done it again in Pennsylvania? The boy in the box could be their child. And they find even more evidence when they zero in on their investigation. Seven of their ten children had died of starvation And none of them had received proper burials. They had all been discarded in this way. So just by the nature of this family and the method of disposal, it seemed to match the boy in the box, right? So they're like, this Mm -hmm. has got to be the family. However, after questioning the Dudleys and watching their movements, the cops determined that the couple were not linked to the boy in the box in any way. And the theory falls apart. So that's their first bad lead. (laughs) Okay. But... Then we get into another theory. This is theory two that's a little more promising. So this comes from Lou Romano and Jim Hoffman, two authors who have greatly reviewed the case. And they detailed a reported lead of a man in Philly who came forward and reported publicly that he, back in the 50s, 
had rented out his home to a man who he believed had the intention to sell his son, his little boy. So the details on this are really murky, especially how this this guy like knew about that and didn't report it. Mm-hmm. But basically, they tracked down the actual man who had rented the home. And they're able to bring in a forensic scientist. He's not alive at this point, I think. I think they just found out who he was. But they bring in a scientist who compared a photo of that man to photos of the boy in the box, who noted three distinct similarities that they claimed was enough. It was sufficient to warrant a DNA test. However, it was confirmed that that test never happened for some reason. And I think that this theory, it makes sense um, for probably that it happened in the 80s, I want to say, because DNA testing wasn't around until like 85. Mm -hmm. So if this all came out, it definitely came out decades after the boy was found and probably this guy was dead. So it's just never, it's just never been confirmed like why that DNA test didn't happen. But when DNA first came out, like DNA forensics, it was very expensive. So if this case wasn't like a hot button issue at the time and there wasn't a lot of public pressure, I can imagine they had other cases at the forefront that were recent that they're like, we should use this technology on something that is happening right now, something we have pressure on. But support for this theory stops for a while after that. Um, but then I think ties into another theory later. So wait, so they, they, how did they know that this man was thinking about selling his child? There's no confirmation outside of that initial person who came forward who was like, I rented okay. a house out to this guy back in like 57 or, or early 50s, whatever. And he was like, and I, I think he was like trying to sell his son. But again, like, it's very murky because nobody ever confirmed, like, okay, well, how did you know that? Why did you not stop that? Why did you not report that kind of thing? Right. And he's coming out about this, like, decades later after the guy's already dead. Um, but all they could afford at the time, the people who were investigating it, they were like, we can bring in a, a scientist who can analyze their pictures and see, like, do they look related? Is there any truth to this? And that scientist suggested he was like, I spot three distinct characteristics. I think it was the mouth the shape mm-hmm. of the nostrils and the shape of the ear. And they were like, these three things match. You should DNA test this, this child and this man. God, it's so, don't you wish that they could do, I know, I think you said that the the photographs they released were like, probably not that clear of, I mean, at that time when they printed these photographs, mm-hmm. you probably couldn't see all of the facial details, but don't you wish that now just with technology, that you can like scan for facial features and stuff and like be oh, able yeah. to put that into a database. Like, Oh my God, they would have been, it would have been so much easier. There now might be something like that that already to. exists. There might be something yeah. like that now. Yeah. Oh my God. They've done modern recreations of his face because the pictures that you you'll see, if you look this up are very hard to look at. They're very disturbing. Even my sister was like, I can't look at his pictures. Like they're disturbing. Can you see me. his actual face? Yes. Sue. Yeah. Oh my God. They distributed actual That's... pictures of his face and they later like had to illustrate over them to like show him with his eyes open, like what he might've looked like while he was alive because they're oh. post-mortem photographs. But like I said, I think in the two th- like early two thousands or mid two thousands, they did like a re- a digital recreation and they were able to show like what he might've actually looked like when he was alive. But at that point it's 60 years later, you know, like 50, 60 years, no one's really going to be around to identify him. Right. But this does lead into theory number three, the second to last. So this comes from Remington Bristow. 
Uh, he's a medical examiner who became obsessed with this case. He invested countless hours of his own research, his collection of evidence, his own money, trying to help solve this case. 36 years of the latter half of his life was dedicated towards solving this case and figuring out who the boy in the box was. So he reportedly became very desperate in his obsession to solve this, and he would travel across the country following leads. He carried around a death mask of the boy. I'm not sure how he obtained it, but he had it in his briefcase always so he could show people and say, you know, this is what he looked like. Do you recognize this? And eventually, as all as all good leads go bad, he turns to a psychic, as you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> so he had settled on this theory um, the boy's death he thought was accidental, but was at the hands of an abusive foster family. He thought that the boy might have been like the Ill- illegitimate child within their foster family. So not a foster kid that was necessarily brought into the home, but maybe like they had a whole family of foster children and the father was doing something sinister with one of the older girls and she had a child and he, th- and they kept it hidden because then they would be outed. Like, how did that girl get pregnant? All eyes look to the father So they kept this child in their possession in this abusive household as a secret. So he thinks that the killing happened accidentally, you know, from this hidden child and for fear of being charged and the whole story being exposed, they made the decision to put the child in the box and then leave him in the woods. And he focuses on one foster family specifically, Stu, and we would learn this family was actually already interviewed years and years prior when police were initially like, Maybe the kid came from an orphanage or a foster family. So they interview all these foster families and this family had been previously cleared. So the psychic that he's working with convinces him. She's like, there's something about this family. They're involved in some way. They know something. He continues to watch them and would eventually spot an estate sale of theirs, which he watches from afar, where he sees them selling what appeared to be a bassinet, which was extremely similar to the one, the make and model that was sold from that JCPenney all those years ago. No. So now, <laughs> this examiner, he still doesn't have concrete evidence to do anything. Again, he's not a cop. He's not an investigator. He's just a medical examiner who became obsessed. He dies by the 90s, but all of his work on this gets picked up by an actual investigator um, because they think it's somewhat promising. So Detective Tom Augustine takes over the case. He looks into the investigation of this foster home and the husband. And as it turns out, the psychic was correct for some of what was going on in there. (laughs) Like, she was right. So he learns that the man of the house, this father, he had actually at some point married someone who was his stepdaughter from a previous marriage. (gasps) So something's already dark in that household. And shockingly, even further than that, she is questioned because she's suspected of being the biological mother of the boy in the box. She responds to investigators when she's questioned, and she confirms She had a son years and years ago who did die suddenly under mysterious circumstances, but she claims he died by being electrocuted by a faulty ride in a park. And they look into this and apparently he's already buried this child. Like, it's true. She had a son. He died. He's not connected to the boy in the box. But like, damn, that psychic kind of nailed it. (laughs) Like That is insane. Wow. Well, she picked up on the fact that something was... Dark in that house. Dark in that house. And how, where was this house? It was in Pennsylvania for sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because that's not a bad lead. I mean, that, that, that would make sense. And actually, it's funny because at the beginning, when you 
started to describe this, I was like, I my first thought was like some uh, child out of wedlock is what I thought. Um, yeah, like a secret child who was hidden because yeah. it would be scandalous or it would be illegal. Yes. I mean, it sounds illegal, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's not a bad lead. And it's almost like the psychic picked up on like the top line clues where she was like, something's dark in that family. There was a boy. He died under like grim circumstances. Something's dark and you got to investigate it. And the guy does. And they're like, well, that all did happen. However, it's not the boy in the box. It's not this boy. It was the boy in the park, not the boy in the box. I just thought that was crazy. I was like, damn, nailed it. Really, though. Yeah, damn, she's good. But a psychic at that time could like, what, research that? Yeah. I know. (laughs) Oh, my God. But that's a dead end, sadly. It's like you got almost all the way there. But then the whole rug gets pulled out from under you. Uh, down to the bassinet. What are the chances? Like, come on. That is wild. <laughs> That's psychic. I gotta track her down, see if she's still around. Oh my god. I wonder if investigators back then, I just think they didn't have the time or the money or the resources, but like, you could probably track down like all of the boys that had been born in hospitals in that area and like started to just like see if they were still alive or whatever but like oh but hello. they tried they totally tried yeah. they tried they tried yeah. <sighs> that was their first instinct they were like well we're gonna nail this kid because we take fingerprints and footprints now in hospitals and you know we can find anybody who was from born three or seven years ago from 1957 we can do that yeah. but they just never led anywhere nobody wait, ever saw I'm, him <laughs> I'm dead that I was like wait I have an idea <laughs> It's the first one we covered. I'm also a psychic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. I mean, there's a lot in this case that they tried, so I don't blame you because it's a lot to process for sure. But this is not the end of the road for them because it leads into our final theory, which I think, Stu, I think this is the most compelling theory. And I think this is going to lead to like an actual break in the case. Yeah. So this is theory number four, the final theory. Now... The investigation with Detective Augustine, who had previously picked up the work of that medical examiner, it does not end with this couple. He's like, yeah, that was a good lead. It did not work out. But he is contacted by a psychiatrist who insists that one of her patients wants to talk to him because she knows something about the boy in the box. So he meets with this woman, and she's only known and reports as M, but I think it's later disclosed that her actual name was Martha. Might be a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Um... And she recalls, or an idiom, or no, what am I thinking? An alias, sorry. Alias. <laughs> yeah, pseudonym I think was correct too. But she yes. recalls in her story, like a repressed memory from her childhood when she was 11, that she was brought by her mother to a mysterious home and witnessed her mom hand over an envelope to another person in exchange for a boy, presumably this these pe- their child, whoever this woman no. was that she was, yeah, she was buying this child off of them. Now, this woman, Martha, who's with the psychiatrist, she's, like, recounting all of these dark memories that are coming to light. And she claimed that her entire childhood, she was routinely sexually abused by her mother. And that her mother purchased this boy from a shady couple or a group of people with the intentions to do the same thing to him. She claimed that when she was younger, she remembered, like, this memory that all came to light. She A specific day, she saw her mother bathing the boy who was like throwing a tantrum in the tub, which explains like the shriveled fingers, the shriveled feet. Cause mm-hmm. they were like, he'd been in a, like a, a body of water for a long period of time. And he started throwing a tantrum and then threw up in the tub 
which explains like the black liquid found in the throat in the esophagus. And then she had an irate outburst and beat him to death, hitting his head against the ground of the bathroom. She killed him. So after that, she panics and put the boy in an old box that they had in the basement for like that bassinet, puts him in the car, drives to Fox Chase with her daughter in the car 30 minutes away and just left him in the woods and then drives off. This story is so compelling. They they bring in Joseph McGillan and William Kelly, who were the very first investigators, the two investigators who were on the crime scene back in 57. They pull them out of retirement. And from Martha's description to them, all of her story, it it, kind of like checks out. It seems true at this point. Like the theory has never been proven, obviously, beyond Martha's testimony Mm -hmm. at this point. So from her recounting her childhood, she provides a dress record. She provides uh, descriptions of the location, the crime scene, the boy himself. All of it seems to check out for them. And all three of them, even Augustine, side with her. They're like, we think this is a really solid lead. This is correct. And it all ties into this first theory about that guy claiming that he rented out a house to some man who was like looking to sell his son to somebody back in like the early 50s. It's crazy. It, oh my God, because like, I mean, sex trafficking mm-hmm. must have been around even back then. Like, or a version of it. I mean, this is... Oh, and so wait, when, when does M come into the picture? Like what year? This is 2002 that she starts like having Stop. all of these repressed memories like come to light, which is also like working against her. It's working against her because the, the theory gets challenged by a couple of things. Everyone's saying, well, this woman's extended family, they come forward first and they're like, never once have, had we ever seen like a boy in the house. We'd never seen the family like have a boy. We don't know if any of this is true, but obviously it sounds like this boy was purchased in secret for some very sinister things. So he would be a secret. Why would, what? Like, why would the family purchase a child and then have him running around the house when other family comes over and not have to explain that, like where this kid came from? Of course he would be hidden, right? Right. So I, I discredit that, but then the woman also reportedly has severe mental health issues, which you can imagine from the description of her childhood. Yeah. So many yeah. of that has been used against her as a way to discredit her story. And again, this testimony came from 2002. It's decades after this case is public, so every single detail about this case has already been written about. So people are like, oh no, she's just like using the existing details of the case, and she's like backfilling the story with, you know, her version of a story. I don't know. I mean, I I would like to know more about M and like if she Mm -hmm. had any sort of context for this story or like any sort of research on it prior. Like, because this is a pretty strange thing to just like come out of the woodwork in the 2000s and be Mm -hmm. like, and and they are able to sort of tie it back to this. Like, unless she, she came into that psychic uh you know the session with her uh psychiatrist mm-hmm. and literally was like the psychic I have and the psychiatrist and i think it's <laughs> two of them <laughs> yeah i know i'm like ah! and <laughs> and she is saying that you know i think this memory i have is linked to the story i know about yeah. like i would actually be quick to kind of think this is a good lead if this woman is like describing this and 
all of a sudden, like after she realizes it, discovers the story about the boy in the box. Like I, I think mm-hmm. it would be it would help me to know kind of when she came to the conclusion that this uh, was a connection for her. You know what I mean? Totally. I'm trying to think because I almost feel like I've read about something like this where this is like a a mental disorder where there are certain people who experience intense trauma and they reformulate the telling of the story by attaching it to like national uh, catastrophic events. Like usually it's like 9-11 type events, but it it could be something like a true crime story. And they like infuse the stories because it makes it feel a little more like fiction because they've heard about it in the news and in like books and online as opposed to just telling it as, like, this is a private story from a very dark part of my childhood. I don't know if that's what's going on here, but we have even more evidence to support that she's not lying. There's truth behind this. So her story comes out, and everyone's like, okay, well, that's just your story, lady, and you're in therapy, so who knows what's going on with you. But even further than her statements, a story comes out and is backed up by an archived report of a witness from back in 57 who reported seeing this woman's mother moving a large box to her car in late February. And this witness apparently interacted with the mother and was like, can I help you with that? And she insisted no and just put it in the back seat. So it's very possible that that box, in that exact moment, she had the boy in that box. And that was just before the drive to Fox Chase, where she was going to dump him in the woods. So now we've got oh, two points of this that seem to align. So it seems pretty compelling, no? Totally. I mean, this this yeah. to me feels like the the best lead we have. It, it's pretty much the only one because everything else has been ruled out, except for that initial theory where, like, that guy was like, "Yeah, I rented a home to somebody who was trying to sell his kid, and I didn't report it. Sorry, like, oh my God. sorry, I didn't tell police that he was like, yeah, I'm going to sell my son.'" You know what else just came to my mind that's really interesting is that he was found, like he was definitely malnourished, but Mm -hmm. that he had vomited something prior. Like, it's just Mm -hmm. weird. Like, almost like somebody, like I, well, you said that it was blunt force trauma that killed him, correct? Yes, but it's, it's, yeah, it's not to say that like any other thing could have been off the table. It just happened to be that's what killed him first, you know? Yeah. It's weird. I was just trying to think to myself, like speculating, did the kid, did the boy, maybe did they try to like save him at the last minute by like making him eat? And then like that didn't, but there's a certain point where the body is just going to like crap out basically if it doesn't have enough nutrients. And I was sort of wondering like, was the boy already on the verge of like dying that day? And then to just like end his life, they bashed his head like it's weird like all the details about how the body was found like all the internal stuff going on is very very interesting that's actually i it's wild that you're saying that because i hadn't even thought about that yeah he was extremely malnourished however his stomach showed that he ate like two to three hours before he was killed so i'm like yeah he was eating and maybe like when you don't eat for a very very long time when you're starving and then suddenly you reintroduce solid food to your body your body's totally. natural reaction is to like regurgitate because it's it seems foreign. Totally, especially I, if yeah. someone has is like force feeding you, right? Like if they're like you, like they realize they've gone too far and the child's about to die, or like force feeding them to keep them alive for whatever like sick, twisted fantasy and oh, God, or abuse yeah. or otherwise. Like 
and then it they realize it's just not going to happen and end up killing them. Like it, yeah. the, all those details are really, really strange. We'll never really know, like if this is true, like what actually happened in that bathroom on that day, if it did happen in the bathroom, although it, it seems right. like it likely did because he was so, he was like clearly just bathed. His hands were shriveled and his feet were shriveled from the water. He had, he had thrown up, he had vomit. And at some point in the middle of all that, Somebody bashed his head into something, or they hit his head very, very hard. <sighs> I know, I know. It's it's a shockingly heavy case, but like I said, there is an optimistic end here because we think we might have a solid lead, and investigators think so too because they're exhuming the body. So, to this day, like I said, the case is still unsolved, but they believe this could be the strongest lead, at least to tell us like how he died. And maybe how he ended up in the woods, if we're going to implicate this woman's M's mother. Um, but this just leaves the question, like, who was he? Like, wh- who was his actual birth family? Who were the people who, like, really sold him? If it was actually the guy that they linked to all those years ago when they didn't do DNA evidence. So maybe that's what they're doing now. Because as of 2020, 2021, they report that they have a major break in this case. They exhume the body and they're going to do additional DNA evidence. So they believe they have enough of these dots connected that if they can get a sample from him and they can get a sample from someone else, whoever this person of interest is, whether they're alive or deceased, we don't know. This is the pathway to linking to his biological family. As I said, they think he still might have siblings that are alive. That would be absolutely insane. Like, also to think that he could have been born into a normal family like if there's any chance of that and that like or if this was a child out of wedlock and they just Mm -hmm. had to give him up for some reason and they thought that they were giving him to a family that would actually take care of him and they turn out to be like just these satanic like awful people or person there's a reason Um, people would buy a child on like yes. a black market like this, as opposed to going to an orphanage. There's a sinister yeah. reason to keep things yes. under the table, off the books. Yes. It, it it doesn't feel like any sort of transaction from the, like, birth parents, unless the birth parents are, like, just awful people as well. Like, it almost, to mm-hmm. me, feels like he could have been taken as, like, a child or, like, something, like, when he was really, really little and then just kept as their own whoever these people were that took him like Mm -hmm. i don't know i am it's so shocking that that this happened without any record of him being born ever we don't know his name we don't know anything about where he came from yeah i'd be very interested to hear i'm assuming like i really don't know very much about the history of like medical insurance but I can assume similar things were going on even back in the 50s, where if you were a very poor person, maybe like hospitals would treat you, but it would be very expensive or costly for a family that's already in poverty. But also like home births were very, very common for a very long time in the United States. Like my grandmother was Mm -hmm. born in a bathtub. Yeah. She told me that all through growing up, she was like, I was born on January 7th in a blizzard in a bathtub because like we just couldn't, we couldn't like go to the hospital. That was like out of the question, the money for gas, the money for the hospital. I was just born in a tub. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think if, if I had to put my money on it, that this was, I mean, all signs point to it being a home birth and not only because of the time period, but also because 
I imagine that whoever had him was very, you know, um, they were underprivileged. Oh, and impoverished for sure. An impoverished. It, yeah, definitely family. impoverished. Yeah. Oh my god, it breaks and then, my heart. In the last minute, where they they have this child, and they're like, "We of course we can't afford to even feed him. We can sell him." Some I'm trying to think of the link of like how do conversations like that even happen, where like this sinister, abusive mother, predator mother, somehow like comes into contact with someone who just had who just had a child, or maybe had the child a few years ago. They couldn't afford him, and she's like, "I'll buy the child from you." How do those connections get made? Like in the uh, absent of the age of the internet, like how do you start talking to people about black market sex trafficking? I'm trying to understand how that happens. I know, especially like back then in the United States in a big city, mm-hmm. like you'd have to, I guess, already be running in a certain kind of crowd to have the connections yeah, to be able to make that transaction happen. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I can't think of any other way that that goes down that you know I, somebody already and they're like mm-hmm. i can help you take care of that like almost like organized crime style like i can i can help you with that like it's just weird don't you want more information on martha's mother this like sinister yes. woman i need to know more about like what like what because the whole time i think maybe just by virtue of like so many of these cases i've i'd always envisioned that a man was behind this especially from the man's cap that was found and that like unknown blonde man who was like 26, 30, who had that cap. And we don't even know if the cap is like associated with this case. It could have been someone who was in those woods like weeks or months prior who just like lost his cap. Yeah. But to think that like a woman, some mother was behind this is really so scary to me. It's so dark. You know what else is really weird is that like, okay, if we're, if we're thinking about the family or the, um, birth family mm-hmm. that had him and that if we're going off this idea that they had to kind of be running in like a, a rough crowd in order for this whole thing to go down. Yeah. JC Penny and a nice bassinet doesn't really fit that like description sort of, of like the type of family he would be hanging out with. Like I'm not saying JC Penny is like Saks Fifth Avenue, but I mean it was not back like then easy it, it was to certainly just, it, yeah it was a it high was end really nice retailer. Yeah. It was a nice department store and like either they found this box and just decided I don't know where they found it, but they decided to shove him in there, like took it from, you know, a dumpster or something. I mean that could yeah. definitely be a thing that happened. But if the person actually had the bassinet, like we're saying, and one of those theories, I think we were saying the foster home theory that they actually had the bassinet. But um, whichever family, if if we're thinking that the family that dumped him had this bassinet, like it doesn't necessarily line up with the idea that they were like in a really impoverished sector of society. Well, okay, so there's two things here. I think the family that sold him might have been impoverished, but the family that bought him probably wasn't. Because if we're going off of Martha's mother Uh, who bought this, she handed an envelope over to this impoverished family who was the birth family at this alleged house, I suppose, and got the kid. And that's when all of the abuse ensued. So it's not off the table to think that clearly this family had the means to, like, purchase a child on the black market. I don't know how much that could cost them, but, like... In addition to that, we have all of these bizarre conflicting theories of like 
She seemed to care for him in the way that you would care for a doll, where she groomed him, she had a bassinet, there was a lot of, like, uh, I don't know, like, the, the theatrics of, like, caring for a baby. It's like playing house in a way. But at right. the same time, there's so much abuse going on, like, intentional starvation, the bruises, the weird, like, surgical scars that that are unexplained. And then... So weird. Maybe even dressing him up and, you know, using him or playing with him like a girl from, like, the plucked eyebrows, the long hair, we don't know. And then, yeah, like like you said, the starvation goes too far and he becomes so weak, he just dies. Or she gets upset with him as this woman Martha described and like throws a tantrum. So she bashes his head into the ground and kills him and they panic. But yeah, then they like use an old box and they just drop him off in the middle of the woods. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I wish we could just know more about Martha. I know. I mean... I can understand why someone who, like, had these memories come to light would be like, I have to share this information, but I have to remain anonymous. Like, I can't, I'm already going through so much processing of my previous Mm -hmm. trauma. I cannot be, like, a public face in this case, this Mm high-profile case. But I do think we will find out more about this case in the years to come. I mean, there has to be a reason they exhumed that body. They definitely have some lead where they're like, "We, we can dig up this boy and we can find something from this. Totally. Oh my gosh. And I really hope they do because this, I'm sure at the time was, because we think about how much national coverage like Lady of the Dunes got in the 70s. At the Mm -hmm. time, I'm sure this was like one of the most like harrowing experiences for families in that area, like thinking about this happening to one of their children. Like, yeah. Oh my God. So yeah, I really hope that they discover who the boy was so that like I'm sure that haunts people in that area that like for years and years and years like that is just one of those types of stories that like the changeling I saw when I was tell it around like fox chase they tell the story yeah like I saw that movie when I was like like 13 or 14 and it literally like still haunts me to this day like I can't imagine actually being growing up in that town and having something like that go down it's just so haunting Oh, you know what I just realized? I told you before, his last name was Dudley. It's not Dudley. I just remembered. It's Bobby Dunbar, I think, was his name, the child. Oh. Yeah, Bobby Dunbar. Yes, yes, yes. That is also an eerie case of, like, a four-year-old who, like, went missing at, like, a lake or a pond or something. And Mm -hmm. then years later, investigators got frustrated and they, like, found some child who was, like, a poor woman's child. And they took him and they were like, this is Bobby Dunbar. And the family was so grief-stricken, they just kept the kid and they were like, this is Bobby. And it was not Bobby. And the mom was like, no, this is not my kid. And they were just like covering it up for the sake of like the police looking like they had their shit together. I think it's like, yeah, it went both ways where she was like, I don't know if that's Bobby. And investigators were like, no, this is Bobby. And she was so grief stricken that she was like, I guess this is Bobby kind of thing. Like was just willing to suspend her disbelief beyond so much evidence that was like, yeah, Bobby had brown eyes and this kid has blue eyes. Like she was just willing to be like, I want to believe that this is Bobby and kept him for years, forever, really forever. He never got returned to his birth bomb. And again, just like boy in the box, the forties and the fifties, it was the, you know, the purest, the golden age of like domestic life in America, like to have something like that or the boy in the box situation happen. Like 
people back then didn't believe that people were capable of doing something like this. Oh, yeah. So, and Bobby Dunbar I'm I think sure. happened like even well before. That was like 1912 or 13 or something. It had to be like... Oh, yeah. It was a long time ago. So investigators, this is well before like <laughs> any semblance of forensics. <laughs> where yeah. They were like, yeah, that's got to be the kid. <laughs> this is your son. Yeah. <laughs> But really, I mean, Ugh. that's all we know up until this point of the boy in the box. I do think it it has an optimistic end because I do think they're going to make a big break in this case. Oh, I certainly hope so. I need another phone call with you where hopefully this time you're <laughs> flying down the street. <laughs> I know. I want to be on foot this time <laughs> in the middle of like a I need holiday. you on foot. Christmas Day, My I'll favorite- call you. <laughs> My favorite part of that episode is I answer and you go, this call is being recorded as if we were like, like <laughs> journalists, like breaking, like it did some feel breaking. insane story. It did feel breaking. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, I, everybody had messaged me on like TikTok and, and whatnot. And they were like, you have to do an update. <laughs> like, they were like, you must, you simply must get Stu on the phone and tell her this. So I think they thought that, that would oh. be like your first time hearing it, but like you had obviously seen like the articles and I had texted you and stuff. Like yes. the Lady of the Dunes had been identified, but even that oh case, there's still well, more to come with that. This time, if something comes out about the boy in the box, legitimately don't text me. Just start calling me repeatedly. <laughs> and I'll know that something's going on and the creepers will get what they want. You're like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I'm like, the boy. <laughs> In the box. <laughs> He's in the been box, identified. baby. Oh, my God. Oh, Please. The that would be, in the God's box. That would be incredible. God's box. <gasps> Stop. Did I just resurrect a memory? <laughs> you just resurrected such a memory in the God's box. Oh, my God. The boy in the God's box. <laughs> I guess with that, I will conclude before we go any further and I finish the rest of this glass of wine. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. Please. This was the boy in I the need box. Now. <laughs> Thank you, creepers, for listening to this. Um, we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And yeah, we're optimistic about this case. Check in next week because we will have another unsolved case for you. And we will say goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to Creep Time, the podcast. Adios. Bye, creepers. <laughs> <laughs>